0: To take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I am very excited to be here because Romans chapter 8 is where everything kind of comes together and finally. Um there's some really great things that, that are able to be said. So uh, when you're building an argument, sometimes you have to wait uh, to kind of throw that big left hook until the time is right. And that's what Romans chapter eight is. It is, it is the big punch. It is all the victory. It's all the, the, the battles that have been won. It is all the good news. And so very, very excited. Uh, about Romans slide. chapter eight. Now, there is some legal terminology, um, at least a little bit in this passage, and so I, I thought we would kind of kind of get our mind, in our minds something like a court of law, because uh, at least at the very beginning, that's very important for us to have a concept of, of what that is. And now, in America, we have some weird things that, that can happen. Um, you know, one really, really famous court case that, that just got finished, uh, basically both people won. Uh, and that's not possible, I would say, in a, um, in, in, a, in a true court of law where you have justice. Um, I know over the years, one thing that, that kind of is a bias for me, I, I read John Grisham novels as a kid, uh, probably too young, and so I always pay attention to lawyers. I pay attention to what they do and how they argue and what they say because it's always been an interest of mine and, and, and I, I have seen how, you know, when a court case is over, the lawyers on either side come out and they talk to the news and both of them paint the picture that they want. And that's always interesting to me that, that American justice kind of can work like that sometimes. But what I do see is that in the Bible, in the courtroom of God, there is, there is clear justice. There is a clear decision. And that's what we're gonna be seeing today. So through this whole study on Romans, everything has been leading to this chapter. This is the big buildup. So Paul had to establish the need for salvation. That's what the first three chapters is about. We need to be saved. And so um, the reason we need to be saved is because we are sinners. Not only are we sinners because Adam and Eve sinned, which led all of us into sin, uh, but also we are sinners because we have made personal choices uh, to go against God's word, to go against God's law, and therefore we are guilty. He also established the method for salvation. Pretty much um, the last part of 3, 4, and 5 are the method of salvation. We are saved by faith. So we are justified, which is another legal word. We're justified when we believe in Jesus Christ. And so that is the choice that we have to make is to believe in Jesus Christ. Once we are saved, then, then that, that is the method, that's the way that we're saved, justification by faith in Christ alone. And then he speaks to what life is like after salvation. So chapter 6 and 7, what we kind of just went through, um, has to do with what it is like to live as a Christian. Um, there's this already but not yet mentality that we have because we are already saved. We are already justified by God. We are already declared righteous. But we know that in our lives we still fall, we still stumble, we still make mistakes. And so we're already saved, but not yet. Are we what we will become we are not yet what god will make us to be and so what that tells us is that there is still a a a struggle there's still a battle that we have to fight and so certainly um, uh, romans chapter six and seven talk about that battle and really that battle is still present in chapter eight but in chapter eight paul is, is with his focus in that battle between sin and righteousness but the prevailing idea of this passage is the victory that believers have in Christ. And so that's going to be the focus is what has Jesus done to bring victory into our lives. And so that's what we're going to be seeing this morning. So the sermon in the sentence, it kind of follows the very same vein uh, because it says Jesus has made a way for us to walk in step with the Spirit of God by restoring us to a right relationship with him. And so that's what we're going to be getting at this morning, is, is, is how Jesus made it possible for us to actually live with God and for God and in stride with God and harmony with God. So we're going to read the first 11 verses, so Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if you not have this highlighted or underlined in your Bible, I recommend, it's not a sin to write your Bibles. I recommend highlighting, underlining, marking this out. This is a very important verse for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, did not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so we're going to look at this, and it's, it's, we're going to look at three points. And the first one is freedom from condemnation. So, again, I kind of stopped and kind of broke up the flow of things just to tell you this first one is important. Can you imagine a better way to start a passage of Scripture than to say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? This is, this is the best way to let us know right out of the gate. There is no condemnation for us. Um, I can't think of a more relevant thing uh, to say in my life. It's still staying with sin. I still make mistakes. And then the knowledge that I will not be found guilty or condemned. So when Paul uses the word therefore, so he says there is now therefore, and therefore, most of your translations are probably going to have that word, therefore. Uh, and why is it therefore? Well, it's therefore bringing everything that Paul has said up to this point to bear. So everything that he said about the fact that we're sinful, but we are saved by grace, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, that we're justified, that we live new lives, that we're new creatures, new creations, all of that is, is, is pulled to bear on this one verse that says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So all of this is here. So... The the therefore is all about this. So the immense sinfulness of us all, the mighty salvation provided by the death of Jesus, and the already but not yet nature of our lives all are in play when he makes this statement. Everything that he said is there. So regarding um, all that he has said, there is now no way for a Christian to be condemned. So think back to some of the high profile cases that you've heard about in the past. Um, one thing that we definitely know about court cases and things like that is that sometimes the public can think that a person is guilty, but the jury finds them not guilty. That has happened over and over again. But once a verdict is issued, there is no way, it's, even in the American justice system, there's no way for a person to be accused and, and, and tried for the very same crime again. We have something called double jeopardy. You can't be put into double jeopardy. And so. What we understand is that in America, uh, when we have the conclusion of a court case, we might declare someone not guilty. Now, if you really kind of know what that means is we're not saying that you're innocent. We're just saying that we can't prove you guilty. And so that's the best justification that you get out of the American legal system. But we know that in the court of God, there is a whole different conversation. Uh, God declares us innocent. If we believe in Jesus Christ, and the reason he declares us innocent is because Jesus took our sins away. That is a very powerful thing because we are not declared not guilty. In other words, you know, sometimes people say, well, God is overlooking your sins. Well, that's what he did in the Old Testament before Jesus died on the cross. But he's not overlooking your sins. They have been taken away. They have been washed away. We have been cleansed. And so we are new creatures without the guilt and the weight of our sin. That is what God is doing. And so that is certainly something to celebrate. That is something that is wonderful for us to know is that we can never be condemned for our sins because they have been taken away. Um, And so... The word condemnation in this passage, it, it, is, it is forensic, meaning that it, that it is very specific um, in this passage. It, it, it re- relates to both the sentence and the execution of that sentence. So, it is, so, so when he says we're, we can't be condemned, he means that we can't be found guilty and we can also not be punished as if we are guilty. So it's a very, very powerful thing. So when we think about what has happened in our lives because of our salvation, because we cannot be condemned, we can never be found guilty for our sins because Jesus has already paid the price. And we can never pay the price for our sins because that price has already been paid It has already been collected completely. So the, the, the penalty for our sins, ultimately, the wrath of God, Jesus took that. And so that's important for us to remember always is that we can't be found guilty for those things. So for the believer, we have already stood trial for our sins. And we were found innocent because the work of Jesus Christ and our faith in him alone. The case has already been ruled. And so that's something that I think is very important for us to recognize as believers. So God is not holding your salvation out and saying, if you do good, I'll give it to you. If you do what I tell you to do, then at the end of your life, you will be saved. No, he's saying, I'm taking care of it now. I'm settling the debt now, and then we're going to work forward. So it's over. That that, that trial, that case, that, that guilt against you is gone. Now we're going to live a new life. Now we're going to be new creatures, new creations. That's how God does business. And so when he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no going back. There is no new accusation, there is no condemnation, there is no way that we can ever be found guilty for our sins. That's a very important thing. So, your first blank on the back of the bulletin is we will never be found guilty for our sins because Jesus has paid the price for them. So important, so critical that we remember that. Because you can easily feel defeated, and certainly Satan wants to lie to you. Uh, I've shared this a, a couple of times. I'll share it again because I think it's important. Um, I've been going to church all my life. And when I was a, actually when I was nine years old, the preacher started bothering me. He started telling me that I needed to go get saved. And uh, I said, well, just wait until I'm 10. Then I'll be grown enough to make that decision. Just wait until I'm 10. Well, my birthday came along, and I knew, okay, so now I have to do this. And so one Sunday, I just walked the aisle and didn't say anything to him. Well, he assumed that I was getting saved, and I got baptized. I became a member of the church. I could even vote in business meetings if I wanted to. They baptized me and gave me a half gallon of the water that I was baptized in. I mean, I had all kinds of physical evidence that I was a Christian. I had the water. I had a certificate. I could vote in the business meeting. I was a church member wasn't a Christian. I didn't get saved. It was three years later when God convicted my heart, and I, I began to go through that process, and I actually became a Christian when I actually got saved. Now, before I was saved, I believed that everything in my life pointed me to you're saved. That business is taken care of. Nothing to worry about there. You know, I could go look on my wall and see a certificate that says I was baptized again. I had a gallon, half a gallon of water in a milk jug that, that was baptism water. Like I, I knew that I had went through the steps that the church requires in order to be a Christian. And so everything was an assurance to me that I was saved. But then after the Lord convicted my heart and I, and I fell under that conviction and I surrendered to the Lord, I placed my faith in Jesus and he saved me. Everything in my mind was telling me I wasn't saved anymore. Everything was a doubt. Everything, every time I sinned, every time I didn't do what I was supposed to, every time I you know, forgot to pray before I eat, or every time that I didn't read my Bible daily, or every time something went wrong that I didn't do what I was supposed to do, it was like Satan was there accusing me. See, you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. You're not saved. And so what I needed in that moment was to read the Word of God, to see what God says about me, see what he says about my life. And a verse like this, if I'd have known it then, would have helped me tremendously. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to know it because Satan, the the, the work, the, the evil that is at work inside of us, even after we're saved, it will try to trick you. It will try to take away your assurance. It will try to take away your confidence in Jesus Christ. If you're constantly worried about whether you're going to you know, die and go to hell tomorrow, you're not going to serve God because that's all you're really worried about is, 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 is doing what you're supposed to do to take care of your own soul. But if you know your soul is secure, then you can go out and share that hope with someone else. It's not really hope if you don't have hope. And so that's an important thing. The work that God has started in us, it was His complete work. God saved you. You didn't save you. And so what we're going to see as we go forward, that that new life that we live is also God's work. It is also His work. Now, when we are saved, the Spirit of God actually dwells inside of us. And that Spirit brings a life that cannot be ruled by sin and death. This is an important thing. So as he goes forward, so in verse 2 he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free... From Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. So this Spirit lives inside of Christians. Now, this may seem strange or it may seem weird to you, but it's one of the basics of Christianity that God lives within His people. So what we know is that in the Old Testament, when God was dealing with His people, one of the first things that He dealt with the people of Israel about after He brought them out of Egypt was He built what He called a tabernacle. And that really means a dwelling. And so God was dwelling with his people, among his people. And so he was there, and they had literally a tent, a tabernacle, built in the middle that they would move when they moved, and it was where God was. Well, as the people settled down in Israel, there came a time where they actually built a temple. That was built under King Solomon. That temple was built, and that was where God was, living among his people. It has always been God's way to be among his people. Now, what we learn is that Jesus himself came and lived among us. He dwelt (laughs) among us. Just as God had dwelt among the people in the temple and in the tabernacle before that. And so when God left, He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send another of the same kind. And what He described was that He was sending the Holy Spirit. So when we look at the very beginning of the church, the first, I mean, you might say the first day of actual church was the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the people of God, the people that had been following Jesus were still... Afraid, They didn't know what they were supposed to do. They were praying. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God came down upon them. He indwelled them. What we have now as believers, he indwelled them in that moment. And that changed everything. So these people that had watched Jesus be crucified, these people who were hiding and afraid for their lives, walked outside and began to declare the gospel. In the same city that had executed Jesus, they began to declare the gospel. They began to preach that Jesus not only was the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, the very same thing that they killed Jesus for, but they began to proclaim that, but they also began to proclaim that he died, that he rose from the dead, and that he was seen by people, and then he was ascended into heaven. So they began to proclaim the complete gospel, what would have been a message that could have gotten them killed, and not only did they proclaim it and their language, which at that time would have probably been Aramaic, the Bible tells us that they were preaching in languages of all the people that were there. You see, it was a holiday in Israel, and so there were people from all over the world gathered together, and each person heard the message of Jesus Christ in their own language so that there could be no mistake. So whatever language a person spoke, they were hearing the gospel in that language. Now what that tells us is that anybody that wanted to know, those people had changed, They had changed drastically. They had power within them that they did not have before. They had a boldness that they did not have before because they came out of hiding in that moment and began to proclaim the gospel. That's what the power of the Spirit can do in our lives. We are no longer under the bondage and the power and the law of sin. That's what it can do to us. And so uh, there will still be times as believers that we fall into sin, but God will continually work in our lives to bring us into conformity to his will. And so, yes, you are going, as a, as a believer, you have power within you that you don't totally understand. I do believe that. But there will still be times that we, we fall back and sin. we do things that we're not supposed to do. But God is working in us to bring us into conformity to His will. So He is putting that power in us so that we do not live in sin, so that we do not live according to the flesh. And I'll talk about what that means in just a minute. So Paul is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes into a person, that person is liberated from bondage to evil and finds a new power within, a power that causes the defeat of sin and leads the liberated person into ways of goodness and love. So let me explain to you what this means. Whether we're willing to admit it or not, most of the suffering and struggles that we go through in this life are because of sin. Yes, sometimes people get sick. Yes, things happen that are outside of our control. But a lot of the problems that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis is because we do the wrong thing. And what this is telling us is that God has given us the power to avoid sin. Just imagine. There's still going to be some struggles and trials that you have to go through. But just imagine now we have the power to avoid sin. We've all known people that it seemed like they just couldn't get out of their own way. They couldn't help it. They were always doing something that would get them in trouble, that would cause problems in their lives. They were always struggling, and it seemed like trouble followed them. Well, trouble was following them. But what this is saying is that when we are saved, we have the power to overcome that trouble. We have the power to overcome those things that are in our lives. And that is not our power. It is God's power within us. Now, he goes on to talk about the law, about the law and about what it's there for and, and what power it has So the law was given so that we would understand the nature of the sin in our lives. Uh, But God had to take action uh, that was more powerful than the law to save us from sin. The law couldn't save us uh, because we could not keep the law. That's, That's our problem. We can't keep the law, so the law can't save us. That's what it does. The the American law is no different. The, The American law is not there to save you. It's there to tell you the boundaries of society. And when we go beyond those boundaries, the law can do nothing to us but punish us. That's what it's there for. And so that is definitely what God's law was there for as well. The law of God is perfect, and it perfectly accomplishes its mission, which is to tell us what is right and what is wrong. Knowledge of sin alone could never save us because that very knowledge is also our own condemnation. We know that it is wrong to do sinful things, but we can't stop ourselves. Before we are Christians, we cannot stop ourselves from sinning. And so that is the problem. So it wasn't the the weakness of the law itself. It was the weakness of the sinfulness of mankind that required Jesus to come to this earth. If we could just correct our paths, if we were strong enough um, emotionally and spiritually, if we had the determination to just fix ourselves, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come down to this earth and die and for our sins. But we couldn't. It was impossible there are things that people can do that they will not do but there are things that are impossible and 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 living in a way that pleases God without Jesus is impossible for us and so that's what we uh, that's why Jesus came to this earth so Jesus became a man and defeated sin so that we could be made right with him so it's this is important this is not really the doctrinal point that, that Paul's making but it's important to mention Jesus was both fully man and God so it says that he came in the image of sinful flesh and so what happens is God came down to Earth as Jesus, as a human. He was both fully God and he was fully man. He looked like the rest of us. If you walked up to Jesus, and that's the thing that I think sometimes artists miss or whoever's trying to portray Jesus, you look at him, he's going to look like any other person. He's going to look like me or you or, or or whatever. But he was different, and the way that he was different is that he wasn't sinful flesh. We come into this world already condemned because we are contaminated by sin. That's the difference. Jesus was fully human, but imagine him to be more like Adam before the fall than more like us now. And so that's the point, is that Jesus came out. He looked like sinful flesh, but he was really a man untainted by sin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he died a sacrificial death so that he could pay the price for our sins So that we could then be saved. So that's how Jesus came in, defeated sin, and made it possible for us to be right with God. So Paul says that he came in like in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like us, but he wasn't saved by sin. Now the righteous requirement of the law was that lawbreakers face the wrath of God. And Jesus faced that wrath in our place. So that's the righteous requirement of the law. Either keep it or be broken by it. And Jesus... Took the penalty for sin so that we didn't have to suffer it. So the punishment was given out. It has been given out and it has been paid, and that's why we can stand innocent. So when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the sacrificial act of his death is placed on our account so that we can be declared innocent. So that's the picture. When we stand before God to be judged, he can't judge us guilty because Jesus has taken away our sins. That's the point. He has washed them away. So God sees our innocence, innocence given to us by Jesus, rather than the guilt and the stains and the sin that we have lived throughout our lives. And so that is what it looks like. So we can now live a spiritual life instead of one that is dominated by our sin nature. So we're not living or walking according to the flesh. I'm going to talk about that a little bit in just a minute. We're living according to the spirit. But that is because we cannot be condemned. So now let's look at what it really means to to walk according to the Spirit. So first thing, when Paul uses the term flesh, he's speaking about those who who live submitted to their (coughs) sin nature. So when he says flesh, it's not that that the meat on your bones is bad. That's not what he means, although that's kind of what it sounds like. What he means is that our sinful nature. And, and so everybody has that. Even after we become Christians, we have a sin nature. We are still uh, prone to sin. We've got a hymn that we say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Um, prone to leave the God I love. We still have that draw. Or we still have that pull to sin. But it doesn't have the same power that it did before because there's a greater power within us. But the people that are not believers, the people that have not submitted to Jesus Christ, they, they can only submit to their sin nature. So that's why they go and that's why they do what they do. If you've ever asked, why is someone doing this? Why are they doing this thing? And so you can think about all kinds of things. You know, For a short period of time, we lived in the city of Montgomery, and we lived on a reasonably straight street. So guess what people did on oh short? Uh, well, guess what people did on our street? They drag race. They'd run up and down, loud cars at night. You know, they, they would do things that were unsafe, and you might ask well, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Well, they can't help it. They can't help it. And, 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 you, and you look across the world right now, and you look at Russia invading Ukraine, you say, why would they do that? Well, Well, they can't help it. You, you look at countries where they take advantage of their own people. You look at China and how they treat their own people. and They treat people that are, that are in their country. And you say, why do they do that? Well, they can't help it. You look here in America and people do things that you wouldn't agree with. And you ask, why do they do that? Well, they can't help it. And the reason is, is their lives are submitted to their sinful natures. And so whatever direction that takes them, that's the direction they have to go. And it's the same thing that was true for you and me before we were saved. We couldn't help it. We did what we did. We didn't have moral authority in our lives. And so we did whatever our sin nature took us to do. Now, there are some things that probably restrain some of that in your life. Um, If you had a parent that you knew would absolutely just wreck your life if you did something wrong, then that probably held you back, at least to some extent. I I remember talking to a guy. um, He talked about the way that his dad responded when he did things. And he said said that, that he knew... That whatever fun there was to be had out there, there was much more trouble to be had at home. And so he wasn't good because he was good. He was good because he was afraid. And that that is one way that people used to raise kids. I don't think they raise kids like that anymore totally. But the reality is it wasn't goodness for goodness sake. It was goodness for self-preservation. We're always good at that too. So what happens when we are saved is that that flesh, loses the battle. It's no longer the most powerful force within us. That sin nature, it isn't the most powerful force anymore. The Spirit of God dwells in us and it is the most powerful force. So we live in a when we live in a state of of submission to our sin nature before we're saved, our minds will be stuck on sinful things. That's just the way of it. And see this is the permanent nature of those that um, have not yet become Christians but it's also possible for christians to fall back into this very same state we can for periods of time for seasons fall back into a sinful state and that is a very bad thing and we should understand that when we allow our minds to be carried away by the problems of this world we will have no mind for god and we will be living in rebellion toward him there is still let me remind you no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus this is an important thing to bring out at this moment because yes As Christians, we are sometimes going to be drug away by sin. We're gonna do things that we're not supposed to do. And you might say, well, well, what do we really do anymore? Do we have thoughts that we shouldn't have? Do we think things about people that we shouldn't think? Um, You're at work, and you're doing the best that you can, and some other person at work uh, runs to the boss and says, hey, boss, look what I did. In your mind, are you not slightly mocking that person? Maybe calling them some names in, in the back of your mind? Um, Is there some person that can just stand up and start talking and right away your mind goes to thinking about things that you wish you were allowed to say? That's also sin. It may not be the kind of sin that we think about all the time, but it's also sin. Do we live sometimes in unbiblical fear over things? That That is sin. Do we talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that doesn't edify them or lift them up? That's also sin. Now, I probably don't have to go into the, the, the uh, more, I guess you'd say, tame sins, because we know what sin is. We, we know what it is. We know the power that it has in our lives, and we know what it can do. And what I mean to say to you is that when we are carried away by those kinds of sin, we have no mind for God. We're not doing His work. We are actually living in rebellion to Him. That is trouble for a Christian, and we need to get out of it as soon as we can. And the reality is, we have the power. We have the power in Jesus Christ to do that. As Christians, we can live in step, in stride with the Holy Spirit, and then our minds can be set on spiritual things. We can focus on the things of God. So, spiritual things are things like prayer, the Word of God, the work of God, and the calling that God has placed in our lives. So a spiritual person is not going to be preoccupied with judging the world, but if we do see problems, we'll pray for them. A spiritual person is not going to be ignorant of the word. We're going to be fluent in the word of God, and we're going to use that for knowledge and guidance in our own life and also share that wisdom with anyone who wants to hear it. The spiritual person is going to look for every opportunity to lift up Jesus before a world who simply does not know him. Uh, and in this passage, Paul makes it clear that there are only two choices. The Bible makes this clear over and over again. You are either going to live in the flesh... Or you're going to live in the Spirit. In other words, we must either walk in the flesh or walk in the Spirit. There's not a middle ground. There's not some place where we can be that, you know, we're just a conscientious objector. We can't abstain the vote. We must choose. We will either walk in the flesh or we will walk in the Spirit. So that is the path that we have to, to, to choose. And walking in the flesh leads to death and hostility toward God. That's what we have to recognize You know, a lot of people, I hear people all the time say things like, well, I lived my life in such a way that I didn't hurt anybody. I lived my life in such a way that I didn't become a burden to anybody. I lived my life in such a way where, you know, anything that that I did wrong, it only affected me. I've heard people say that. Well, here's the reality. If we live our lives in a way that's not submitted to the Word of God, we are living in hostility to God. We are in open defiance to God. We are in rebellion to God. That's an important thing. That hurts somebody. That causes problems. And that is not just living the best life that we can live for the circumstances we have. So a person who is submitted to their sin nature lives... In hostility toward God, and we must be aware that there is no other choice for that person until they are saved. So what is the answer when we look out across the world and we see sinful things going on? Um, are we supposed to come up with social problems, social uh, programs that solve the problems? Are we supposed to you know, do things that, that we think might lessen the, the, the pain and the suffering in this world? Well, maybe, but not first. The first thing that we have to do is share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the quickest way to get out of a hole is to stop digging. You ever heard that? If you you find yourself in a hole and you want to get out, the first thing you need to do is stop digging that hole. Well, the stop digging the hole is to begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we stop digging the hole. Too many times, too long, churches have said, ten ways to have a better marriage, seven ways to manage your finances. All these sort of things that churches talk about doing, well, one way to be saved should be our message. And, and we should make that clear. Day after day, Sunday after Sunday, we should make it clear so that people understand that we're not here to tell them how to live. We're here to tell them who to live for. And if they don't want to do that, then none of the other things we have to say even matter. None of it matters because it's already settled. If they don't want to live for Jesus, nothing else we have to say is going to be of value to them. That's what we need to declare. So that's, that's, that's important. We also need to remember it's impossible for a person who is lost to please God because they can't obey the law. And when we live in rebellion to God, we can't please Him. But we've been saved, so our lives are different now, and our lives are different forevermore. We can now walk in stride with the Spirit and live a life that is pleasing to God. Whether we want to admit it or not, we do like to live a life that is pleasing. We always look up to somebody. You'll have a mentor in your life. You'll have a close friend. You'll have a relative. You'll have somebody that you would you would like for them to be proud of you. You would like for them to say, you know what, they're doing a good job. And, and, and i tell you that, that that's a good thing. That's a good thing because it's a motivating thing. But the most important thing is that we live a life that's pleasing to God. And think about how empowering it is in our lives to know that when we do well, God will be pleased with us. I cannot describe the joy of knowing that we have done what God wants us to do. That God looks on us and He is pleased. But that is the goal for each and every one of us. Remember the parable of Jesus where He he, he was presenting as a master to a servant, but the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we all long to hear. At the end of the day, we don't need crowns and mansions and rewards and accolades, that glory can go to God, but we would love for Him to be pleased with us. And so that is what we look for. So we also now have a life in Christ, and so that's what we're going to look at and kind of finish this up. As we get to the end of this passage, we can see the tone of victory that Paul is using concerning the Christian life, because he says, you, however, are not of the flesh. You are not in the flesh. Um, So the Spirit of God lives in us, so we do not walk in the flesh. And so when he uses the word if here, in the English language that usually presents some kind of uh, question or some kind of possibility, uh, are are, are we going to go down to the creek? Well, if it doesn't rain. Well, in in the original language, the language that the Bible is written in, if doesn't always mean that. Sometimes it means more like the word since. So since it's not going to rain, we'll go down to the creek, right? And so that's what this means, since the Spirit of God lives in us. So you might read this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's, what, that's how you can translate that, because that's what it means, is the Spirit of God lives in us, he dwells in us. But here's the contrary, at the end of verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this is also an important thing that we have to realize. The Spirit of God is not an occasional visitor. He takes up a residence among God's people or in God's people. So we have to understand that just as God was with the people in the tabernacle, He was with the people in the temple, He was with the people as Jesus Himself. He is with us now as the Spirit, and He dwells within us. This is one way that we know we are saved, because the Spirit of God lives in us. This is an important thing. God wills His children and enables them to live righteous lives. We cannot live righteous lives on our own, but we can live righteous lives through the power of God that lives inside of us. I feel like I've said this enough, but it's impossible for us to live a life pleasing to God before we're saved, but afterwards we can. It is possible. We know that we are declared righteous when we become Christians, and we know that that's a work of God. And what I want to tell you is that the righteousness in your daily lives is also a work of God. People are going to see it before you recognize it. People will say, hey, you're a little more patient than you used to be. Um, Some kind of medicine. You, 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 You seem to be a little bit more chilled out. You seem to be a little bit more understanding of things. You seem to be in a little bit better mood. Well, that's not you, and don't go to you know dislocate your shoulder and pat yourself on the back. That's God working in you, and so give Him praise and glory that He is bringing you from where you were to where you are, and He's not finished. He's going to take you even further and, and allow you to grow up even more, and so that's a progress, but it is His work. It is not only our work. We do need to make choices. We need to choose to follow Him. We need to choose not to follow the sin. We need to choose not to our sin nature, but even the ability to make those choices, ultimately, God is giving that to us. So, the last little bit here. The critical miracle in the New Testament is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, Paul says if Christ is not raised from the dead, all hope for us is, is gone. And so what we understand is that it was the Spirit of God, this is what he says at the very end of this, he says the Spirit dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead. So we have to understand the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. That same Spirit dwells in us. And so Paul has already taught us that sin leads to death. And so in a very real sense, before we are saved, we are dead. Our lives are dead. Our mortal lives are over. And what he's saying is that in a very real sense, the Spirit of God, when it comes in you, it brings life into you right now. into your mortal bodies right now, you have life that you did not have before. But the forward-looking picture is that also it is bringing life into us in eternity. So not only do we have life now that we didn't have before, so those that would like to talk about abundant life, and Jesus talks about having it now, that's what it is. This life that we have victory over sin, this life where we can serve God, we don't have to worry about the things of this world, that is the abundant life God is giving us now, but also the eternal life that God is providing for us, that is the life that the Holy Spirit gives us, that is the work of God, and that is certainly something that we can worship Him about. So the very same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us now. So the Spirit living in us, bringing us, or the Spirit is living in us, bringing life in us now, I can't read it anyway, but blank is forever. I can't read that. But anyway, so that's the point, is that now and forever, life is coming into us. It's coming into us through the Spirit that dwells in us. So, for a conclusion, I want to bring a very powerful thought to your mind. The thought is, every good thing in our lives comes to us because we are in Christ Jesus. That is where the good comes from. Okay? so. We are free from condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. That is, this, this conversation goes no further until we are free from condemnation, right? Um, we have new life on this earth because we are in Christ Jesus. We have power over sin in this life because we are in Christ Jesus. We have the promise of eternal life because we are in Christ Jesus. The good things, the lasting things, the things that go on for eternity, all of that comes to us because we are in Christ Jesus. So, all of this is good news. In fact, all of this is the message that we need to proclaim to the world. Every time I get an opportunity, I I tell Christians that they need to be talking about Jesus. And and the reason I say that is is because that is the burden that is on all of us. It is on all of our lives. And now, some of you may be saying, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a preacher. I don't know all the things that the Bible says. And I would say that in in time, you will learn what the Bible says, but you know what God has done for you. You know what God has done in your life. And let me tell you, if it's enough that it happened in your life and you know what God did, it's enough for you to share with someone else. Because that is hope. That is life. That is what people don't have right now. They don't have that. They they, they feel that need, that urge crying out in their body. There's so much rage. There's so much anger. There's so much mental illness in this world right now. And I'm telling you, they don't know the gospel because that's where hope is. That's where the truth of God is. And if it's true that God made us, God intended for us to know Him. And if God intended us to to know Him but we don't, imagine the moral dilemma. Imagine the emotional anguish people go through on a day-to-day basis because they don't know they don't know Jesus. They don't know the answer to their pain and their struggling. All they know is that it hurts. And they don't know why. They don't know why they can't do different. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the answer. We must declare that. Many people walk around today thinking that this life is all there is. And we can see just how they would reach a point of despair. Because there's not much in this life or to this life before Jesus. But the greatest things in our life come to us because we were in Christ Jesus. Let us shout that from the rooftop so others may know and believe in Jesus. Christians have always spoken in the world. We always have. Um, I, I know when I was a kid, so this is 1980s, 1990s Baptist life. We were known for what we were against. Uh, we, were, we were against dancing. Now, I still, we're doing the Baptist Faith and message. Um, I have never seen a document in all of Baptist history that has said that Baptists can't dance. But how many of you knew that Baptists aren't allowed to dance? Something that's kind of wired into us. I've never seen it in writing, ever, anywhere. But we were, we were against dancing. We were some of the teetotalers. We were against alcohol. We were against tobacco. We were against all these things. We were against, 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 against. That was what I knew growing up. And I'm sure many of you lived through that phase. You knew that we were against all those things. But you know what we should be for? We should be for people hearing about Jesus. Let everything else sort itself out. Because just like when God got into your life,
1: man, he had a lot of
0: work to do. When he got into my life, he had a lot of work to do. When he gets into the lives of people in this world, he's going to have a lot of work to do. But it's his work. It's not our work. It's his work. So trust him by just telling him about Jesus. Share Jesus with people. Let him do the work. He will do that work. Do we need to know what we think about sin? Yes. Do we need to, in our own way, proclaim the truth? Absolutely we do. But when we go out into the world, there is no message that needs to be proclaimed except the gospel. Let us proclaim it. Truly and faithfully, let us proclaim Jesus. He is the answer to the world's problems. Let's have a word prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time we gather together. And I thank you for your word. I thank you for the victory that it provides in our lives. Because not only have we learned this morning that we can not be condemned for our sins because Jesus has paid the price for our sins, but we also have learned that sin doesn't have the same power in our life that it used to because Jesus has given us the victory over that as well. And so I pray that you help us, knowing all of this wonderful information that we would share it with people. That is the most loving thing that we could do. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to talk to other people about you. Thank you for all that you've done in our lives so far. Thank you for what you're going to continue to do. We give you praise and glory for all of it. But Father, I pray that as we gather here this morning, we would know that we have the most urgent message in the world. It is the most needful and urgent message. And we would be wrong. If we do not tell others about it. We have talked about walking in step with your spirit. Father, we would fall out of step if we do not declare Jesus to the nations. I pray that you help us to do that. Be faithful to do that. Be responsible to do that. Because we have been saved for such a time as this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.